Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, or JOMA, podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I am a general pediatrician and proud JOMA member. And tonight, I'm really, really honored and really excited to be interviewing Dr. Judith Friedovich-Kyle. Before I introduce her, I am going to say, as I have been doing always recently, that if you have topics you're interested in, please reach out to us at health, H-E-A-L-T-H at joma.org. Someone actually reached out to me and asked me to interview Dr. Friedovich Kyle. So thank you to that person who did so. This is an amazing interview and I'm very excited to have this opportunity. So I really do appreciate when people, you know, write in and say, hey, there's someone I want to hear, some topic I want to be interviewed or even, you know, comments on, on the interviews. I love the feedback and the ideas. I will also say this is a kind of a trigger warning. Um, We're going to be talking in depth at the end of it, more at the end of it about galactosemia, which is Dr. Fridovich Kyle's specialty, um, her area of interest in research. And at the very end, we get to a a subtopic of that disorder that is more sensitive. And so um, families, peoples with this disorder, listener discretion is advised, Um, but I do think it's important information. I just wanted to give the heads up. So Dr. Friedovich-Kyle, PhD, got her bachelor's in biochemistry at Princeton University, went on to get her PhD in biology at MIT, her postdoctoral training at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Harvard Medical School. She is board certified by the American Board of of medical genetics and genomics in clinical medical genetics. And she has been at Emory since 1991. She is currently a professor in the Department of Human Genetics at the School of Medicine in Emory. And her research focus is inborn errors of metabolism, particularly galactosemia, in which she is a a incredible expert. So this is an incredible honor and I am so pleased to have her here tonight. Welcome, Dr. Friedovich Kyle. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. My pleasure. I'm really delighted to be here. I am so excited. I've been waiting for this for a while and I'm really looking forward to learning from you. As I told you before we started recording, I am friendly now with Dr. Bracha Tarshish, who you taught years ago. <laughs> I <And> feel old. <laughs> no, no, no. We are as young as we feel, first of okay. all. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and second of all, she's very, she's young um, and she raves about you. And so I've been really, really excited to do this interview. And I will say that the talk I did with Dr. Tarshish is called Cracking the Genetic Code. I don't think I made a catchy one for this one because I used that one already, okay. <laughs> um, but people should go back because I'm, we're not going to have much overlap. There may be some, but that was a more over, broad overview of genetics. And we're going to talk here more about what's called the inborn errors of metabolism. Okay. And I would like, um, if you can, to please just start, what is an inborn error of metabolism? Sure. So um, if people think back to their biochemistry class and they learned about all of these pathways, Um, that's metabolism. And an inborn error of metabolism is a disorder that results from um, inheriting mutations in the genes that encode some of those enzymes. And so there are hundreds of different kinds of inborn errors of metabolism. And individually, they tend to be rare, but altogether, they're actually pretty common. Um, And some of them Um, result from problems metabolizing proteins or amino acids. Some of them result from problems metabolizing lipids um, or or fats, and and some um, result from problems metabolizing carbohydrates like galactose, which is a sugar, which that's the disorder that I study is galactosemia, which is an inborn error of metabolism of carbohydrate. So, right. That, yeah. That's a very good, succinct explanation. So how do we <laughs> diagnose these disorders? 
Um, so uh, that's a great question. Um, some of them are on what we call the newborn screening panel. And um, do I need to explain newborn screening or is that something you guys so have So we can go into it very, very quickly just because people aren't listening sure. to two podcasts at the same time. Sure. So um, newborn screening is a program that started in the 1960s. And uh, the way it works now is that when the baby is born, um, the nurse comes around and um, pricks the child's heel. And I can tell you, I was terrified when my son um, was having his heel pricked and uh, like he slept through it. So I was quivering, but he was fine. So I'm guessing, I'm guessing you don't have a lot of nerve endings in your heel. Um, anyway, so they, they collect some drops of blood out of the child's heel onto a special piece of filter paper called the Guthrie card after Bob Guthrie, who's one of the pioneers who started this program. Um, and they dry it um, and then they um, send it to a state lab. And here in Georgia, the state lab is actually right up on Claremont Road, very close, very close to Emory. And all the all the positives or the, the abnormal ones actually all come to my department. Oh wow. From all <laughs> over the country? No, 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 no. It's it's a state oh. program. So from oh, that Georgia. program. Okay, Georgia okay, program. From Georgia. Got it. I had this vision in my head of all over the country them yeah. coming no, just no, no. to Georgia. So, no, okay. So newborn screening is federally mandated, meaning mm. that every state must do it. But how they do it, what diseases are on their panel, what cutoffs they use, what technology they use, each state gets to choose for themselves. Um, so what that means is that there are children born in one state who are screened for a different panel of disorders than children born in a different state. Um, and that's a different, that's a conversation for another day. Um, but a number of metabolic disorders are identified by newborn screening, that the purpose of newborn screening is to identify disorders that you can't tell just by looking at the newborn. The newborn looks fine, um, but if they start consuming a normal diet, meaning breast milk or a, a cow's milk-based formula, either the proteins in there or the lipids in there or the sugars in there are gonna make bad things happen. Um, and so you need to know pre-symptomatically if the baby has one of these disorders so that you can intervene and put the baby on a special modified diet to protect them from whatever components of a normal diet might be bad for them. And so galactosemia and many other inborn errors of metabolism are now identified by newborn screening, which is great. Um, but I told you there are hundreds of inborn errors of metabolism right. and most newborn screening panels have maybe 30 or 35 diseases on, on their panel. So there are many that are not on the newborn, you know, the rare ones um, tend to not be on the newborn screening panel. And so those are identified because the baby gets sick. Um, sometimes if the parents had carrier screening before conception, they may have had a heads up. And so they may be able to have the baby tested so that they can find out early. But oftentimes, if if the condition is not on the newborn screening panel and the parents don't know that they're carriers and therefore at risk, what happens is that the baby gets sick and 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 that's how they get diagnosed. How do they decide which which diseases go up on which panel? <laughs> That that is a complicated or that that is a great question with a really complicated answer, and I will tell you that uh, it is supposed to. Um, so the disorder is supposed to be uh, common enough that they're actually going to find some. So if it's one out of ten million babies, it doesn't make sense to do it. Okay, so it has to be common enough that they will find some. It has to be severe if it's not diagnosed, there is supposed to be something you can do about it. So if you diagnose them, is there a, you know, is there an action you can take that will benefit the child? Um, and so in general, most of the conditions that are on the screen um, meet those criteria. The reason I'm hemming and hawing a little bit is that um, sometimes there are I'm going to I'm going to say political, but it, it, basically sometimes um, a parent group um, may 
um, may petition mm -hmm. to have a, a condition added to the newborn screen, even though there may not be a good treatment or they, they so sometimes, sometimes in some states, they will add a disorder because there was, I'll call it com community pressure to do so. Um, and, and sometimes that doesn't always work out great. So meaning you pick up a disorder that you can't do anything about. Yes. Or even that um, sometimes the testing, um, there's something called a false positive. Yes. They really means, want you to talk more about that. Please. Okay. So, so newborn screening, it's a screen. And so it is designed to be able to be done from a dried blood spot and to be fast and to be cheap and to be, you know, scalable because there are an awful lot of babies born each year and they need to, and it has to be quick. Um, and so the way they set these screens is that you never want to miss a positive, but, and, and so there's a trade-off and in general, you say, we would much rather have a false positive that turns out really not to be affected than to have a false negative, which right. means, oh my God, we missed a kid and they could die. So, so false positives happen all the time. Um, and it really depends on a lot of factors. Um, so for instance, in some states, the false positive rate for galactosemia was like 50 to one. Okay. Ooh. Which means you have an awful lot of families who get a phone call, they interrupt breastfeeding, everybody gets an ulcer. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's, 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 it is not benign to have a false positive, but it is still better to have a false positive than a false negative. And so this is one of the challenges of newborn screening is to try to design tests that are fast, cheap, scalable, that will never have a false negative and that will minimize the false positives. Minimize. Yeah. And it is a work in progress. We'll yes. just... I mean, I know for thyroid, um, you know, and it does screen those, those tests are not just screening for inborn errors of metabolism. They're screening for a wider range of diseases. Correct. Even hearing impairment in Georgia is, is on the newborn screen. That is certainly not a metabolic disease, but yeah. Hearing impairment as part of a blood test? No. So they, they actually put little headphones <laughs> The right, a hearing, a hearing test, right. Yeah, it's a hearing Yeah, test. no, we do hearing screening in New York as well. Okay. But in terms of the blood test, the tests are not always those for inborn errors of metabolism. There's a whole bunch of other disorders. Correct. Correct. That can be picked up on that tiny little blood spot, which is incredible. And I know yes. as a pediatrician, we are getting these false alarms on thyroid mm -hmm. all the time, but it's well, very treatable. It's very treatable. You don't want to miss it. And you never want to miss it. Exactly. Right. But, but yes, a, and, and false positives Sometimes it is just like spurious. It's just like, you know, if you do a thousand of these tests, some fraction of them, but sometimes it has to do with, you know, premature babies tend to have a higher false positive rate just because of what they call immature liver, which right. that's not really a scientific term, but, you know, um, or um, depending on how the newborn screen is done. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in galactosemia, you can do an enzyme assay or you can look for metabolites. And some states do the enzyme assay first and only do the metabolites if the enzyme assay was low. Other states and other countries do the metabolites first and only check the enzymes if the metabolites were high. Well, sometimes the mother's milk hasn't even come in yet when they collect the, the blood spot. So sometimes mm. the baby has not been exposed then. to very much milk, you know, or or for whatever reasons, especially if the baby was premature, they may have put the baby on sort of a, a synthetic formula to make it easier to digest. Um, so, so the baby's diet, whether or not they've been exposed to galactose, has a big impact on what their metabolite levels are. So, so sometimes you can have, a, you know, a false positive or a false negative. In, 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 in part because of the test, but sometimes right. it's because of the conditions of the baby or, or, you know, th there were, there have been some, some, um, uh, you know, really um, sort of classic, you know, classic, you do not want this to happen 
um, things where, for instance, in in Georgia, it is hot in the summer. In New York, it can be pretty hot in the summer too. Um, and the dried blood spots sometimes have to be shipped from a hospital in you know, hours away to wherever the screening lab is. Um, and it is supposed to be shipped in a refrigerated truck. Well, sometimes the refrigeration isn't working or so heat and humidity can change the, the properties of the blood spot. And so sometimes you will get a false positive, not because there's anything wrong with the blood in the baby, but because the blood spot basically was compromised in transit. Um, so that ha that happens too. Right. I mean, I still can't believe that we're using the same piece of paper with the same circles that we've been doing for decades. You think they would come up with something new because I remember doing it and I was really bad at it. It's like, are you good at coloring in the lines? <laughs> I'm so bad at that. Yeah. I'm glad I, I have staff that does it for me now when it has to be repeated. <laughs> well, so just, just to be clear, the, the blood spot is going into the same basic type of filter paper, yeah. but the testing, it's almost all done by tandem mass spec right, now, which right, is right, not the huge. way it was done in the 60s. Right, right. So. And that the, 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 inven the invention of, of whatever you want to call it, of tandem mass spectrophotometry revolutionized. Yes, yes, the absolutely. The, the, the detection of these disorders. It used to be just a few disorders. And now, like you said, 30 would probably be a low number. Correct. When, when my children were born, Georgia was testing for nine diseases. And, and now it's more than 30. Um, and, and, you know, just with the tandem mass spec from a teeny tiny little bit of blood, you can, you know, you, you can see all the peaks. And so, you know, if phenylalanine is high and tyrosine is low, that child should be checked for phenylketonuria. You know I mean? So right. there are, there are recognized patterns that, um, that are, it's much more sensitive now. It used to actually be done um, with bacteria that were, um, that were oxytrophs for, for instance, wow. and it was looking at bacterial growth in, in the dish. Um, so we've come a long way and it's certainly not perfect, but it's better than it was. Right. No, it, it's incredible. The progress is incredible. Yeah. I wanted to point out the timing of the screen because I know that's a big deal in terms yeah. of you can't do it before the baby is 24 hours old. And why is that, by the way? Well, well, so um, th there are there are multiple concerns. And by timing, we both have to worry about was the child born like on their due date? Were they premature? Were they post mature? Um, and then and then how many days from from birth. So here in Georgia, they typically recommend they 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 want to check the kid before they leave the hospital because once they leave the hospital, some fraction of those kids are not going to come back to get checked. Okay. And and that's another conversation, but but they they would rather check them a little earlier than they wish to make sure that they get as many of them as possible. So um, so again, here in Georgia, I can tell you that my insurance covered one night in the hospital. So, you know, if your baby is born in the evening, um, the next day you're going to be leaving the hospital with that baby. They want to check the baby before you leave the hospital. So the reason why it would be better if you waited a little bit um, is that some of these diseases, as, as we discussed, mm -hmm. result from problems metabolizing proteins or metabolizing sugars or, or, or fats. And the baby hasn't eaten much when they're first born. So you want to give them a little chance to have consumed something so that their blood levels, basically, if they're having trouble metabolizing one of these things, their blood levels will have a chance to show the abnormality. Because when they're in utero, for starters, they're not really eating much. And secondly, mom is basically dialyzing their blood at the placenta. So the levels, while they may not be perfectly normal, they don't go as wildly elevated as once the child has been born and their blood is no longer being dialyzed by mom at the placenta. Um, so here in Georgia, they test before you leave the hospital, which is usually 
less than 24 hours or close to 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And then they ask you to please come back at one week and just at the pediatrician's office, they repeat the test. Really? Uh, oh yeah. So that, that's what we did with, with both of my kids. So they repeat the test. It, again, they prick the kids heel, they collect the blood spots, they send it to the lab. Um, and the, the, the rationale is you want to do the first test in part because, because you, you don't want to miss the kid, you know, because they might not come back for, for a later test. And in part, because for some diseases like galactosemia, for instance, um, every day matters. Every right. day that the baby is drinking milk before they know that there's a problem, that that's not a good thing. So you want to you wanna test as early as possible so that you will get the answer as early as possible. And, and then they do the repeat test at a week, just so that if there was a false negative, because the baby was too young at the first test, hadn't been drinking enough milk or whatever, they get another shot at it a week later. And how long does it take the test to come back when it's positive versus negative? <laughs> well, that depends where you are. So, right. so all, 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 all these are great questions with, with not so great answers. So, no, I mean, I live this as a pediatrician. I kind of know this, but yeah. So, um, so I can tell you that I, for, for galactosemia, um, it's typically about a week. Um, in Germany, it's three days. Uh, in the UK, uh, it was 15 days. Um, and they actually stopped doing newborn screening for galactosemia. They still do it for other things, but they actually removed galactosemia from the newborn screening panel for two reasons. One is it is actually much more common in the UK than it is here. And so the doctors recognize it. They know the symptoms and the turnaround was 15 days. And right. every baby that came back positive had already been diagnosed by right. symptoms. So they were like, why are we spending money on this? This is not benefiting anybody. So they removed it from the panel. So turnaround is, a, is different in different labs. Right. But I, I have never seen it be repeated at a week. So if you're doing it at around 24 hours old and the baby may not have even been fed, how many are you missing? Well, so again, it depends how you do the test. So mm -hmm. for galactosemia here in Georgia, the enzyme assay is tier one. Um, and that's not going to change depending on whether the child was fed or not. I so, see. So for galactosemia, it really doesn't matter um, for for conditions where you have to have a metabolite build up to some level, then then what you have to say is, OK, well, at 24 hours, maybe our cutoff needs to be lower because they haven't had time to mm -hmm. build up really high. And so then the question becomes, well, you know, where can we put the cutoff so that we won't miss a positive? but we also will minimize false positives. And, and, and so that's where we get into that gray area where, where sometimes you have a lot of false positives to never miss a true positive if you're trying to do right. the test at a time when the signal is not going to be ideal. Right, right. I mean, especially because babies who are breastfed are not getting milk. They're getting colostrum. And again, you know, especially the, the preemies are usually getting something else, you know, so, mm -hmm, so, right. um, so it, it is, it is not the same for every baby and, and, and it is very imperfect. And that's one of the challenges of a screen is you have to make kind of a one size fits all right. system when there is no one size right. that fits all babies. <laughs> right, right. So let's go to the baby that you either haven't gotten the screen back on yet right? Or one that it came back normal. When should you suspect that you have missed an inborn error metabolism still? Well, um, if, I mean, oftentimes if the baby is not thriving, if the baby is not gaining weight, mm -hmm. um, if the baby is, you know, jaundiced or, you know, more, more than just a little bit and it doesn't go away, or if the baby is vomiting way more than you would expect. So, you know, so so basically, if the baby is is showing signs of a problem, um, and typically not growing is one of the cardinal signs, um, then you start asking 
why. And the first thing you do is you take a blood sample and you check it for, you know, basically the, you do a full court spread on it. Right. I'm going to point out that jaundice and poor feeding can be very common in breastfed babies in the beginning when there's it, not it, a good exactly. nursing. I don't want people to get confused and go, oh, yes. that's happening to my kid. Why didn't they do an inborn error metabolism check? Correct. Oh, I, 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 I completely, uh, I'm a mom. I breastfed two kids yeah. and, and I know that it, we were not too good at it when we first started. So um, there, I mean, the, the problem is that, you know, most, most of these disorders, the initial presenting symptoms are not unique. It's not like the baby, you know, gets a mark on their forehead that says, I have PKU you know, or something, right. you know, they, they show signs that could be any of a million different things, some of which are common and some of which are severe and bad. And, and so you really, you know, as the parent and as the primary healthcare provider, you really have to, um, you know, sort of, you don't want to overreact, but you also don't want to underreact. And so I think you, you keep a close eye and you say, is it getting better or is it getting worse? And if it's getting worse, then that's when the little alarm bells ring and you say, maybe we better figure out what's going on. If it's getting better, generally inborn errors of metabolism and untreated kid gets worse, not better. Um, but you're right that it's, it is, it can be tricky. Right. What about later presentations as opposed to say failure to thrive in a, in a newborn? Yeah. So um, certainly there are plenty of conditions that don't present in the first week. I mean, look at Tay-Sachs or, I mean, you know, so there are conditions that, um, that are, are invisible, um, by, you know, to, to the naked eye. Um, and you would have to do a specialized kind of a test to, to see that, that something was building up or that something bad was happening because it's not clinically mm -hmm. apparent yet. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And there, I mean, there are some that are not apparent until, you know, the child is running around and, and, you know, not, not a baby anymore. So that is actually, um, th there's, there's a big, uh, conversation going on, I guess, in the metabolic community about, um, you know, should we be doing newborn screening for conditions that are not going to present until later in life? Mm -hmm. And, and then the question becomes, well, um, is there anything that you would do differently for the baby or, or really is there no like preventative anything that you could do that, that would minimize the damage that would show up, you know, when they're 10 years old or something. Um, and for some conditions, you know, sometimes there's enzyme replacement therapy. Well, right. Right. It it's changing given, so rapidly. It's yeah. changing rapidly. It's ridiculously expensive. Um, and it is not always clear um, who really needs it and who doesn't um, and who, you know, who's going to benefit and who's not. So, um, you know, so it, 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 it's a moving target. Right, right. It's a conundrum. It really is. Yeah. As we learn more and we get more information, we have to decide, right? Can't yeah. just do two trillion tests on a newborn. And, and that's, that's a problem, by the way, when you have, say, 23andMe or one of these, you know, direct-to-consumer testing and you get all this information and what does it mean? Well, um, there, there, are, there are studies going on right now where they do whole genome sequencing mm. on the newborns. Um, there are some studies where they do a whole genome sequencing on every baby who goes to the NICU. Um, some where they do it even on just normal, healthy babies and, and then say, does this change the child's healthcare plan over time? Um, and invariably, there are a few babies who, yeah, you learn something really important that does change, you know, but then for most babies, you don't, and maybe you see some things that are really scary, and then you do 35 other tests to find out, well, it's really going to be okay. Um, but there are also, you know, there are conditions where um, we may not have a treatment for it. Right. Um, and it may not be evident right away. And if you 
don't identify. So, so there are some conditions, for instance, that don't show up until the child is maybe two or three years old. Well, if, if you don't have newborn screening for it, the parents have no idea that their child is affected. And they sometimes will have another child in that period of time. Um, and because they didn't know that they were carriers. Right. Whereas if you did newborn screening on the first child, even if you couldn't change the outcome of the first child, doing it would alert the family that, that hey, you've got a one in four chance that this is going to happen again. And some people would want to know that. Other people would not want to know that. So it, again, it gets very sticky. Um, and that is not what newborn screening is supposed to be used for. Right. But there are some people who say, well, do we only want to benefit the child or do we want to benefit the family? And if this knowledge would benefit the family, then maybe that is part of our mission. So again, I don't, I don't have the answer, but I'm just telling you these are difficult right and i think it's it, it, right it's also conversations that you have to have whenever you do a test right i mean even before you do it you're talking about explaining what the risks of the test are right and the benefits exactly. of the test exactly what you might learn what it might mean right um and some people you know i i think i think one of the one of the challenges you know so like i i teach i teach a course in graduate human genetics and and whenever we talk about you know direct to consumer genetic testing or whatever everybody in the room, they want to know everything. Like I want to know, you know, everything. But, but we have to remember that there's kind of an ascertainment bias there. Right. People who are taking graduate human genetics may not represent 99% of people walking into the grocery store. And, and just because we would want to know everything doesn't mean that everybody wants to know and people should have you know, some say over what information they are given if it is something that, you know, th there are some people who are like, look, I don't, I don't want to know if something bad is going to happen to my child 10 years down the road, and there's nothing I can do to change it now. I would like to have 10 carefree years. Don't make me have to worry about this for 10 years. And there are other people who are like, well, I want to know because, you know, a, a, a new treatment might be developed and I'll know to keep Googling and, and, and watching for it. Whereas otherwise I would, you know, so there, there are a million reasons right. why everybody wants to do their thing. And, and it's very difficult because any one person can't always um, guess what somebody else would, would want to know or want to do with that knowledge. Right. And this is also true for, um, having genetic screening before you have children to begin with. Yeah, like J screen. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I interviewed I interviewed someone from J screen. And so oh, we talked good. we talked That's about fun. that. And J screen and there's also other programs. There's a program mm -hmm. called Doria Sharim where they don't actually tell you. They just tell you whether you're compatible. And some people, you know, some people don't want to for various reasons know all the details. And you know, I can understand, you know, both both views of this. Um, but we're learning so much more. And so, you know, there is a trend towards more, more is more. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. And, and, and I think one of the messages that I have sort of seen loud and clear, although I have seen different families operate differently and in some families, you know, one person finds out they're a Tay-Sachs carrier and everybody in the, it like, it goes out on the wires. Everybody in the family knows that they are at increased risk. There are other families where nobody says a word and, and then, you know, 20 years later, someone, you know, is pregnant, gets tested and they find out that, that both parents are carriers and, and they think, oh my God, here's this, you know, how crazy bad luck is this? And like, I actually know a family like this and I'm thinking, your mother is a carrier. I mean, she didn't tell you, right. but you know, it happens. Right. So I want to talk just for a few minutes. I really want to get to galactosemia. Sure. <laughs> I want you to lose your galactosemia energy. Okay. <laughs> but I want to just talk for a few minutes about testing for children with developmental disabilities. Because I've mentioned before, I have a daughter with autism and I'm seeing more and more, it's almost becoming expected that when a child is diagnosed with autism, they will be sent for genetic testing. 
So I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is when you do genetic testing, really, there are there are two reasons why you do it. Well, three reasons. One reason is there are some causes where there is a treatment. So if if it's possible that 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 the symptoms are caused by something that we could do something about, you want to find that out, right? right. So, so that's that's option number one. Option number two is um, sometimes um, the the condition is something that it could be A, it could be B, it could be C, and and the prognosis, what's going to happen next, or or you know what types of intervention might be tried are different depending on whether it's A or B or C. And just looking mm. at the child at this point in time, you can't tell, but, but if you looked at the, at the genes, you could get a better guess. Um, and then again, sometimes it's that the family wants, you know, people want to have an, they want to understand what caused it. Um, and, and for some people, um, they, they want to know what their recurrence risk is. And, and sometimes it's not only for themselves, but, you know, they may have a sister or a brother who's just got married and planning to have kids. And, you know, so, so sometimes it's not just for the child or for the nuclear family, but to help inform the extended family that they may be at increased risk for something. And, and again, sometimes if you know about it ahead of time, it might change what you do. Right. Or the flip side to know that it was just a random mutation and that it will not happen again. And that can also remove a lot of guilt that yeah. there's something the parent did. Yeah. Or, you know, um, there are, there are some, um, so just to, to put this in a galactosemia context for a minute. Good. So, <laughs> I'm get so the okay. We will. So, so um, <laughs> There have been uh, different opinions over time about how strict the diet needs to be. Okay, I think everybody agrees these kids should not be drinking milk. They should not be eating ice cream or having mozzarella cheese or whatever. So, you know, those things that have a lot of galactose, they should not be eating. But there are um, a lot of non-dairy foods, uh, legumes, for instance, or tomatoes that have a little bit of galactose. Now, it turns out your body synthesizes more galactose than is in that tomato. Mm. But um, there was a period of time where many healthcare providers were telling the families, don't let your child, you know, put ketchup on their French fries. And um, one of the first times that I went to the Galactosemia Foundation and I gave a talk and I was showing some data, some blood tests basically. And I showed that, that a, a certain symptom that didn't normally show up until the child was more than 10 years old, that we could tell by looking at the blood that the problem already existed when they were a baby. And, and I remember I showed this and, and, and then after the talk, um, uh, one of the grandfathers actually came up to me and he said, do you realize what you've told them? And I thought he was saying, you're saying there's no window of opportunity for intervention. It's like, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's what the data show. I mean, I, ha I have to be honest. And he said, no, 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 no. You just told them it's not their fault. Right. My daughter has been getting told by my granddaughter's pediatrician that it's because she let her put ketchup on her French fries oh. that this bad thing has happened. And my daughter has been going through her days consumed by guilt that it is her fault. And you just told her that it is not her fault. And, and so I was like, oh, good. <laughs> I mean, right. I, I, I wish I had a cure. I wish that I could just make it all better. But if I can if, if information can at least remove some incorrectly placed guilt, right. well, maybe that's a good thing too. Right. I want to say one more thing before we get to galactosemia, and I thank you so much for doing this with me, sure. is another advantage, you said the Galactosemia Foundation, another advantage to getting a diagnosis is finding other parents who can community. help you, a yes. community help you learn tricks and yes. trades, all these kind of things. It's so yep. valuable. Oh, so yes. Let's talk galactosemia. Sure. 
And okay. we almost put the Galactosemia Foundation, by the way, as a link for people. Oh, good. Yeah. So the Galactosemia Foundation, a, amazing group of people. I've I've been interacting with them uh, since 2006. I mean, they have existed long before that, but I've been interacting with them since 2006. And um, they, they're incredible. I feel like I'm a better person and a better parent for having interacted with them. Um, okay. So I guess, do you want me to- Yes. What is a... Galactosemia? How common is it? Sure. Okay. So Galactosemia um, is an inborn error of metabolism. And as the name implies, it has something to do with inability to correctly metabolize galactose, which is a normal sugar. Uh, it is at, present at high levels in milk as part of lactose, the disaccharide of glucose and galactose, but your body also makes it. And in fact, if your body couldn't make it, you wouldn't be here. So galactose is, is really important, not only for you know, energy, but also um, glycosylation, post-translational modification, galactose is really important. So um, in the United States, it's about one in 50,000 births. So between 80 and 100 kids are born each year in the United wow. States who have classic galactosemia. Now, galactosemia is actually a family of conditions. Um, the pathway of galactose metabolism involves a number of different enzymes and people are born with mutations in the genes that encode any of those enzymes. And so um, classic galactosemia is profound deficiency of the transferase enzyme, galactose 1-phosphate uridyl transferase. There's also an epimerase deficiency galactosemia and there's a kinase deficiency galactosemia but let's let's not talk about those right now. Th those are 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 Rare. very different. Um, when most people say we've got a baby with galactosemia, typically they mean classic galactosemia. Um, I I do want to point out that there is a variant of transferase deficiency called Duarte galactosemia, which is about ten times more common in the United States. Hmm. Um, and some newborn screening programs pick it up and some don't. In New York, they don't pick it up. Um, wow. And and for many, many years, in fact, for, for many decades, um, there was a controversy about whether children with Duarte galactosemia, who have about 25% of the normal level of GALT activity, um, if you feed one of those babies milk, their metabolite levels can go quite high, um, but they don't get sick and they seem to be healthy. And then they were basically, some places said, you know, let's put them on soy formula for the first year, and then we'll check them again. And by then, they're usually able to drink milk without their metabolites going up. And so people would relax the diet and say, go have a nice life. Um, and nobody knew whether these kids were at increased risk for long-term complications. And there were, let's just say there was some controversy in the literature and that um, was something that I worried about for decades. Um, and uh, then actually one of my one of my colleagues um, had a baby with Duarte galactosemia um, and came to see me and said, you know, what, what should we do? Um, and, you know, at that point, it was not known whether breastfeeding that baby was going to lead to long-term complications or not. It was pretty clear it wasn't going to make them acutely ill, mm -hmm. but would it predispose them to have, you know, learning disabilities or something down the road? Nobody knew. Um, so I decided somebody's got to do something about this. So, um, so we actually did a three-year study where we were able to um, uh, recruit families with affected kids from around the country and we ended up testing 350 of them and some of them had drunk milk. Anyway, we did a, a big study where we had, you know, unaffected siblings and we had kids with Duarte and some of the kids with Duarte had drunk milk and some had drunk soy. And there was absolutely no difference. We tested 73 different outcomes. We had, you know, child psychologists and, and speech pathologists and so on checking these kids all between the ages of six and 12. They were perfectly fine. There, there was no increased prevalence of a problem in the affected kids than the unaffected kids. And there was no difference between the kids who had drunk milk and the kids who had drunk soy. So at this point, most physicians who I know of say, let the baby drink milk. And in fact, many newborn screening programs are saying, let's do like New York and stop picking them up because all right. we do is make the families crazy. 
Right. It sounds like not a real thing. Exactly. I mean, I'm and, summarizing it. I don't mean to be, yes. you know, no, you're minimizing. Right. But... And, and in fact, there are mild variants of most metabolic diseases. Right. And depending on how the newborn screen is done and how they put their cutoff, sometimes those kids get picked up and then people have to figure out, does this child need intervention or not? And it is not always clear. So, right, I'm thinking of histidinemia. Right. I mean, there are there are mild variants right. of almost any condition you can think of. Um, and so the reason I brought this up is galactosemia, even if you're only talking about transferase deficiency galactosemia, there, are, there is still a spectrum of how impaired right. is that enzyme. And uh, it's an autosomal recessive condition. So we know that having half the normal amount, you're perfectly fine. From Duarte, we know that having 25% the normal amount, metabolically, when you're a baby, it may look abnormal, but clinically, you're fine. Right. Um, the, 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 the problems happen when you have no activity or almost no activity. And so we call no activity classic galactosemia and a teeny tiny bit of activity we call clinical variant galactosemia. And there are, um, since 2004, every state in the U.S. has had classic galactosemia on their newborn screening panel. So fortunately, it is very rare for a baby to die of classic galactosemia now, although before newborn screening, it happened all the time. Um, and what we know now is that no matter how early you pick them up and how rigorously you restrict their diet, um, although you can spare them the acute symptoms and you can have a fat, happy baby, um, most of those babies are going to grow up to experience some level of developmental problems. And so there are speech problems, there are uh, cognitive problems, there are some behavioral issues, you know, there's low bone mineral density. There, there are quite a number of issues. Um, some problems affect kids of, of both sexes. Some problems are, are specific to one or the other, but the bottom line is dietary intervention alone is, is great because it saves the baby's life, mm -hmm. but it does not prevent the long-term complications. And so that's, that's what, you know, that's what keeps me up at night. And that's what, you know, keeps, <laughs> keeps me going into lab every day because we, we need to do better. We, we need, we need better interventions. And so that's what I and others are, are working to come up with. Right. Does it make a difference how fast it's picked up? <laughs> um, that's, that's a great question. And there was a, a th so the answer is no. Um, okay. Well, Okay, so the answer is whether it's picked up on day two or day seven, it doesn't really matter. Um, if it was, wasn't picked up until a month, right. that, that might matter. Um, and th the way we know that the early milk exposure is not what causes the, the long-term complications is that, remember I told you that in the UK, um, they actually stopped newborn screening for galactosemia because the doctors all recognized it and it was taking so long for the result to come back. Well, so what that means is that there are a lot of families where the first affected baby was born, drank milk, got sick, got diagnosed, got put on soy. Well, the families know that they're at a one in four risk. And so for every subsequent pregnancy, the baby is basically, you know, con considered guilty until proven innocent. Right, you know? so, right. so the baby is born, they go right on soy, mom pumps and freezes her milk while they get the baby tested. If it turns out the baby doesn't have galactosemia, great, go back to breastfeeding. If it turns out that the baby does have galactosemia, that child never saw a drop of milk. In fact, sometimes the pregnant mother didn't even drink milk while she was pregnant, just in Does that case. make a difference? Well, so, so now so you have a bunch of sib pairs and you can say, are the oldest affected children in these families more severely affected than the younger ones? You wanna make a guess? What do you they think? Are, they are, the older ones are more severely. They're not. <gasps> oh, They're not. They're it made not. no difference. It made no difference. Yep. So, wow. so that tells us that it's not the couple of days of milk exposure predisposing to long-term complications because the if that were the case, the younger 
affected siblings who never saw that initial exposure should have a milder outcome. And that is not what the data show. Right. Just to be straightforward, what are the symptoms sure. of galactosemia? Okay. So um, more than half will show a speech problem that is- Oh, I'm sorry. I meant early on at the very beginning, oh. if they were fed milk. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So the acute symptoms would be uh, jaundice, vomiting, diarrhea, bilateral cataracts, hepatosplenomegaly, failure to thrive. And if you haven't figured it out and switched them, they eventually get E. coli sepsis. E. e. coli, is, I remember that. That's a board That question. is often what kills them. That's so, a board question, yeah. Yeah. Um, so those are what we call the acute symptoms. Mm -hmm. And and fortunately, if you pick them up early um, and you switch the diet, even if they've got a little jaundice or they've started vomiting, that usually self-resolves once you get them off of milk and, and put them onto soy. Um, so that's the acute symptoms. Okay. Should, okay. So, so now I'm going to switch to the baby was picked up really early, was put on soy. You've had a fat, happy baby and they are growing up. Um, and what happens is that um, some of them do great. Okay. So uh, I run a, a, a longitudinal observational study I just enrolled patient 588. Okay, so wow. we, we have a lot, been doing this since 1992. So we follow people. I've seen a lot of kids grow up. Um, some of them do absolutely great. We have people with galactosemia in our study who are, we have one who's a chemical engineer. We have one who is a journalist. We have one who, she's not deaf, but she's actually a sign language interpreter. So there are, there are some folks who are really doing great. Um, there are other folks who are really struggling and and cannot live as independent adults, um, and most people are somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. So, what causes that if, if you're able to control <laughs> the diet? Well, um, so that's a great question, and I wish I knew the answer. Mm -hmm. um, the best guess is that it's the endogenous. Well, it's probably the endogenous production of galactose. So, mm -hmm. although you can have de minimis amounts of galactose going in the diet, if every cell in your body makes galactose, you're still seeing a lot of it. Uh, okay. Not what you take in, it's what you make. Well, right. So if you take in a lot, that makes it worse. Right. <laughs> but just removing it from the diet does not mean that the baby's body is no longer seeing galactose. Um, so, um, so, so what we know is that as, as these apparently healthy babies grow up, um, many of them will have speech problems. Um, many of them will have um, what are often called cognitive problems. But if I were a child psychologist, I would probably use more specific terms. But mm -hmm. um, basically, they a lot of them ha have trouble in school. M many of the kids are on an IEP or, mm -hmm. or, or getting some kind of special services. Um, uh, there are motor problems that maybe 40% of them will have. And sometimes, uh, sometimes it's a tremor, but sometimes there's no tremor, but there's ataxia or, um, basically different, different types of, of motor problems. A uh, small percentage will, will have seizures. Um, but again, that's, that's not all that common. Um, so there, there are cognitive problems, speech problems, motor problems. There's some behavioral issues, um, uh, low bone mineral density. Uh, they tend to have growth delay, so they tend to be kind of s small and 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 slim for age. Um, but they tend to also have delayed puberty, which means they keep growing longer. So they generally catch up. So mm -hmm. so as adults, they're not really so short. Um, but but when they're you know, when they're 13 years old and many of their peers have started going through puberty and are, are suddenly having this growth spurt and, and they're still, you know, pre-pubertal, it can kind of look more obvious um, than, than when they're 35. Um, so, um, you know, th there is, uh, you know, for, for girls, there is an ovarian insufficiency issue um, for uh Many of the kids, there are some gastrointestinal issues. Uh, many of them tend to have constipation. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure that there are other symptoms that we, you know, haven't even 
you know, really figured out whether or not they are truly mm. galactosemia associated. Um, you know, if it's something that affects 80% or 90% of the patients, you can say, you know what, this looks like it's associated. But if there's something that affects, you know, a smaller fraction. So, so we've started studying um, some of the maturing adults. Uh, one of the one of the realities of studying a disorder that uh, before newborn screening, people typically died as babies. Um, and the newborn screening, although it rolled out in the 60s, it wasn't until 2004 that every state was doing it. It means that the population is not at equilibrium. Right. Um, the young people far outnumber the old people. And so most of what we know about galactosemia is about young people because they're the ones we had to study. So um, I and, and some colleagues have started trying to, to focus on some of the, you know, 30 year and older, um, who's, they look young to me, but some of the, the um, adults with galactosemia. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that we have found, for instance, is that many of them have um, uh, anxiety or, or depression. And uh, initially, I thought, oh, my God, that, that's a pretty high fraction. And then I looked to see what is it in the general population. It's, it's pretty high in the general Forget about population, it. Forget about too. it. Yeah, so, you'd have to be at the 80 to 90 percent to impress me. I mean, you know, it's it's so common, unfortunately, in young people. Exactly. So I think that um, we have to be very cautious when we look at a symptom to say, OK, I believe you, you're experiencing this. But is it caused by your galactosemia or is it something that is independent of the galactosemia? We need to look at a bunch of other people first who do and don't have galactosemia to figure out if the prevalence is, is, is different. And, and so that's a process that's still going on for, for some of the other symptoms. Right, you know, I do wanna talk about the primary ovarian insufficiency. You know, we talked about that before, you know, this is a sensitive topic, but I think it's important as we're learning um, about adults with galactosemia to talk about that particular issue. So can you tell me more about that, please? Sure, so, um, so it is called, um, primary ovarian insufficiency, POI. Um, and what it means is that um, for some girls, not all girls, but, but many of the girls with galactosemia, their ovaries um, are not developing normally. And we don't truly understand exactly the mechanism right now. That's, that's something that we and others are studying. Um, but what we see, for instance, is that, so we, we did a study of a large number of girls. And of the ones who were teenagers or adults, we said, were you able to achieve menarche, have, have a first per menstrual period, um, basically finish puberty uh, spontaneously on your own, or, or did you need hormone replacement to get there? And two thirds of the girls achieved spontaneous menarche, and about one third needed hormones to, to get through puberty. Um, the ones who achieved spontaneous menarche, we then said, did you keep cycling normally? Like, you know, one year out, two years out, three years out, what did it look like? Um, and what, what we see is that of the ones who achieve spontaneous menarche, um, most of them have stopped cycling within five years, um, which if you go through menarche at 13 or 14, it means by the time you're 20, um, for many of them, not all of them, but for many of them, um, they are no longer cycling regularly and many of them go on some kind of hormones. And there are many options for how the hormones are delivered these days. But for many of them, it's just because their cycle was so irregular that it was driving them nuts. They never knew when their period was going to start. Mm -hmm. um, I want to say that we have women in our study who've had three kids naturally. Okay. Oh, wow. So so we should never say never. There are absolutely some women with classic galactosemia mm -hmm. who are able to achieve pregnancy the normal way. Um, there are others who need a little intervention. Um, so sometimes if they still have some follicles, they can get some hormonal stimulation and that helps. Um, and then for those who really don't have uh, too many of their own follicles anymore, um, there's nothing wrong with the uterus. And so um, for some of them, 
they do egg donation and it can be a family member, a sister, or, or it can be an unrelated donor. Um, there are women in our study who have adopted, you know, I mean, so there are many ways to become a mother um, and, and women with galactosemia have tried all of them. <laughs> so, so there, there, there are definitely women with galactosemia who are mothers and in just about every possible way you can imagine. Of, of right. Getting there. Is, is, is egg freezing a possibility? Okay. So um, that is currently experimental. So a study in Denmark, um, was done, uh, and a, a study is actually underway right now at the NIH, um, where it's not really eggs that they're freezing; it's ovarian tissue mm -hmm. um, that they're freezing. So, so it is invasive. You have to basically do surgery and go in there and take out a, a piece of ovary. And the the problem is that um, it it pretty much has to be done when the girl is still young, and so she can't really consent on her own it's not even you know a four-year-old girl is how are you going to explain to her what this is about so it, it's something that the parents are really having to decide for her um and it is it is not clear at this point how well the ovarian tissue of a galactosemic girl will um will manage through the freezing, you know, the cryopreservation, so that 20 years later, when you thaw it out, are you going to have something to work with or not? And at this point, for girls who do not have galactosemia, the, the cryopreservation really was, was originated and has become standard of care for girls who are going to have, let's say, chemotherapy or mm. radiation because they have leukemia. And so you have an eight-year-old, there is nothing wrong with her ovaries, but her body is going to be bombarded with all this ovotoxic stuff. And so you you remove an ovary and you freeze it. And then you do the you know radiation or chemo, it works. She goes on. And 20 years later, she is married and wants to have a baby. They do surgery, give her back her frozen tissue, and it works great. There's, there's that, that is clear. That is standard of care. But the, the ovary of the girl with galactosemia is not quite like the ovary of the other little girl. And so at this point, we know that yes, you can freeze it, but nobody has yet, you know, waited 20 years, thought it out right. and said, what's it going to be like? So it's experimental. Right. And just to be clear, the reason you can't do this when they're older is because by then it will be too late. So um, for most of the girls, by the time they are a teenager or an adult, um, their ovaries really are even just what are sometimes called streak ovaries. The, the, the ovaries are, the follicles are pretty much gone. Right. And the people you talked about who had multiple children or any children are the exception. They're the minority. Correct. Correct. So, um, you know, any any condition that that um, lowers fertility doesn't necessarily lower it to zero. So you could find people who were using birth control who got pregnant despite using birth control, right? The very few things are a hundred percent effective. Well, galactosemia, there are, you know, a small fraction of women who are doing doing their ovaries are, are still working well enough for them to get pregnant and, and have a healthy baby, but they are the minority. Right. They're the exception to the rule. Correct. Correct. So they exist. And I could never tell a woman for sure you can't get pregnant because that's not true. I don't know that. Um, but for most of the women I have talked with, um, they, they had trouble getting pregnant and, and, and eventually, you know, went another route. Right. But this is something that is evolving. And as we learn more, you know, we'll be able to have more information to make better decisions potentially exactly. as early as we need to. This, this field is absolutely changing every year. So I think that, um, you know, this, this is something we're going to have to watch. It, we, we really, um, you know, there are options now, and I'm sure that there will be more and better options in the future. Right. And I think it's important to know, and again, this is a difficult thing to talk about, but I think it's really important. 
So I have to thank you so much. This has been amazing. I have learned so much from this myself. I really appreciate you doing this with me. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. This is really, I, I, I you know, I, I love talking about galactosemia because I, I really, I feel very connected to this community and I, I want to see, I want to see them thrive. And, uh, you know, my, my, my goal is that in the not too distant future, when we tell parents your child is affected, we'll be able to say, and here's an intervention that will, exactly. that will help. Exactly. Before I leave you, is there another organization or just the Galactosemia Foundation is it? Well, um, there are many local. So the Galactosemia Foundation is headquartered in the United States and is, you know, it is it is the biggest one by far in the United States. Oftentimes states will have their own local ones. So, so there are often local ones that are much smaller. Um, and then, you know, in Europe and, and in Argentina, I mean, there's, there's one in Buenos Aires, you know, so there are, there are also organizations in, in other locations, but Galactosemia Foundation is where I would start. And um, just, just to be clear, they are at galactosemia.org. Uh, be very careful because there are other sites out there that have .com you want.org. Oh, that is really important. And we'll have to yeah. put it in the, in the show notes. Thank you so much. I really sure. appreciate um, it. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care and, and happy Thanksgiving. You too. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.